economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm Jacob Caudill, the undergraduate scholar for the Gortney Institute. With me today is Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics, Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Penley Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, and Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Professor of Economic Education and Research. Okay, so lots of things going on with the economy. At the time we're recording this, President Biden is unleashing our strategic reserves of oil and lots of other things with inflation and other things. So we thought this was definitely a good time to have a little talk on the economy. And so I'm just going to lead off with the first thing that bothered me was 50 million barrels ends up being a very small fraction of the approximately 2 billion barrels, I believe it was, over the course of the next month. So we can't unleash 50 million barrels all in one time. It takes time to refine it and whatnot. So they, I think they said it'll trickle into the economy over the course of a month. And at the same time, we're running about 100 million barrels a day. And so to think that this is going to have much movement at all in terms of the supply of oil, which our basic economics class does tell us that if there's an increase in supply, holding all of the things constant, that there would be a decrease in the price. However, this isn't a very significant shift. And I haven't heard any economists make any predictions, but it's certainly something that should be well within their wheelhouse to predict the, the elasticity of demand on the price of gasoline. And But I suspect that it won't go down more than uh, five cents or, I, and I'm just throwing a spitballing here, but we're, I don't think we're going to see anything down to $2.80 that would, would make some meaningful changes for people's budget. And therefore, it brings us to the political economy, public choice issue of this matter that it seems to be clearly political that Biden is throwing this out since his longer term objectives were climate change. Remember how fossil fuels are going to hurt the environment and we should try to substitute towards, you know, non-fossil fuel burning energy. Well, to me, if prices are high for crude oil, that would be a good thing. That would be right in line with the long-term policy objectives of the Biden administration for climate change. We'd want gas prices potentially high. In fact, they might want to see them go higher so that there's incentives to develop wind and solar and other forms of energy. So I'll just leave it at that for now. That's just me expounding. Justin, what did you want to add? To be clear, though, when you say we'd want higher gas prices, you are saying if I were in the Biden administration, the <laughs> Biden administration would want higher gas prices in order to fuel these other kind of investments, right? That's Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, the, I do have to be careful with that we statement. Yeah, it's not we, the United States of America. It's not we, the Gortney Institute. It's it's definitely, I guess, a they in this case, because I'm not a fan of that, I think. I support real world people that put real world gasoline in their real world car and go to the real world work. And I don't live in some sort of Washington, D.C. bubble. And I think innovation and, and change will adapt to climate issues over time as they come, which seems like to be the pattern over the last hundred years. Yes. Yeah, so, so given an idea of the ineffectiveness of this, just to be clear. And so I just pulled up a quick stat here that 
the U.S. uses over 19 million barrels of gas per day for, for cars. And so this is a release of 50 million. We use 19 million per day. And so this is a little over two days worth of gas. And these are 2016 numbers, so we probably consume more today. So it's it's maybe even just at two days worth of gas that Biden is releasing, basically. Yeah. And so it's not very much. And something else economics teaches us is if we know that the supply is going to increase in the future, that means we know that the price is going to be lower in the future. And gasoline companies don't don't want to sell all their gas at these lower prices in the future. So what they'll do if they know prices are going to be lower is they're going to increase the supply actually right now. They're going to try to sell at the higher prices. And so there's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that happens that actually a lot of the price reduction that's coming from this decrease in supply probably happens immediately after the announcement. Which is, you said you thought yeah, which, maybe which, they did fall yeah, a yeah, bit. Yeah, gas uh, here in Ottawa, it's a lot better than a lot of places, but it's like, <laughs> it was, I think, 316 a few days ago when I filled up, and now it's 309. That seven cent drop is probably a pretty significant portion of this fifty million dollar barrels of oil that Biden's releasing. Uh, probably won't go much lower. I would say, you know, I kind of with Russ, maybe three dollars the lowest. You know, in a month from now or something like that. Everything else held constant. So, well, and Justin, go ahead. Just while we're talking about gasoline, too, I think we should also make it perfectly clear that there's been an enormous amount of gaslighting of the American public on this issue by the corporate press. So I want to read two headlines, both from the corporate press, like a week apart. One was from November 9th and one was November 19th. And the first one says, why Joe Biden can't do much to ease gas prices, right? So this is the view that, yes, gas prices are high, but of course, that's not Joe Biden's fault, right? So don't you go take out your anger on this administration. They can't do anything about it. Ten days later corporate press, oil prices are finally falling. Thank China and Joe Biden, right? So maybe within those 10 days, Joe Biden and China got together and discovered this thing that they could do that nobody else knew about beforehand. Or maybe that's not what's going on here at all. And it would be weird if, I mean, we've bad enough if this message was just coming out even from you know the corporate press at large, but these are both from CNN. These are both headlines on CNN's Before the Bell. And not only are they both headlines on CNN's Before the Bell, they're both by the same person. They're both by Julia Horowitz. So this is a really blatant example of, look, when bad things happen, they're not our fault. Unless, of course, those bad things don't end up being so bad, in which case we're responsible for the good things. And that's insane. And once you realize that the information that you are getting on issues like this is so absolutely funhouse mirrored. I think that should make you angry and make you want to realize what's actually going on too. So I just want to throw that out too. So to any of our listeners who think like, well, wait a minute, I have been told like, oh, you know, yeah, yes, you have. And these people are, seem like they're clearly trying to manipulate you. We've done a few different podcasts on federalism, which is the idea that the central, the federal government should be very limited in its powers and a little more power residing with states and more at the county city level. And I don't know how things like this couldn't make people want to drift more that way, is that it just shows that we should be limiting the federal government powers, that they continue to do these funhouse mirrors and and just play to the whims of of who they think the voters will be run the next election and they people like that shouldn't have that much power is, is the bottom line and I'd like to think that's a bipartisan 
argument, but I, I know as well as I'm sitting here that it's not. And I, I struggle as an economist and a person who wants to see the United States be better. You know, how can I help shape that message that, you know, whether you're Democrat, Republican, left or right, let's all just work together to limit uh, whether Trump gets an office or whether Obama gets an office or Biden gets an office or Bush gets an office, who cares? Just l- squeeze them all down because we know that they don't have a lot to contribute. I do want to echo something Russ said earlier, which is that like the other funny thing going on here is that we want people to use less oil because climate change. And we also want really low oil prices, right? And these two things are obviously incompatible. Lower oil prices will mean Americans consume more oil, which is directly opposed to this idea that Americans should consume less. We should use less gasoline and things like that. But this is like a sort of a ghost of Christmas future moment, I think. Like, what does it mean for the U.S. to stop drilling for oil? What does it mean for the United States to stop buying and importing oil? Well, it means this. It means the supply is going to fall and the price is going to go up. Yeah. This is what the world looks like when we try to relax our dependence on oil. People are, are already unhappy with these, you know, honestly, not terrible gas prices. They're high, but they're not even the highest they've been in my lifetime. You know, we, we've had worse. I think in 2018, it even got worse for a little while was the, the numbers I saw. So it's high, but not that high. But it would be much worse if we stopped drilling, stopped using any at all. And that's what it looks like. So, you know, these $5 prices in California, $3 prices here in Kansas only gets worse as we start to pursue this zero gas, uh, zero oil policy. And, you know, that that's what apparently we're trying to move towards. And now the, the counter argument is, yeah, but by then we'll have all these new electric cars and, you know, we'll have more solar panels and things like that. I don't see any Tesla stations around me and they want to, I've seen different timelines for this. It's always changing 2025, 2030, you know, all these different timeframes. As far as I can tell, if you live in the Midwest in the United States, if today we snapped our oil supply back to where it is now, or if we left it there because we're trying to cut down on oil usage, that hurts us. I, I don't know if you're living in New York, maybe you can walk everywhere or DC. But, but here in the Midwest, we do not have the infrastructure to have like electric cars, which probably are going to run on coal anyways, you know, going from place to place. That's just not there. I think the nearest Tesla place to me is like 45 minutes away or something like that. And so it, it's just not a viable option. Well, the other thing that bothered me was this notion that this is our strategic reserve. So I thought back, you know, I'm a Dave Ramsey fan. So I, I've been a talking about emergency funds and strategies for your own personal living and budgeting. And so a strategic reserve to me means you don't touch it unless it's an emergency. (laughs) And so how could this even be thought of as an emergency? So if I'm China and I'm thinking, yeah, maybe war with the United States at some point in time might be a good idea. When would be a good time to pounce? Maybe when the strategic reserve is down to nothing, right? So, and and again, with a lot of people live their lives with their personal budgeting emergency fund to be their credit card, right? So that they can just always use their credit card just in case there's an emergency. And of course, that is the mentality of our government right now as well. They can always sell bonds. They can always do that. And now with inflation, where it's at creeping up, and other factors going on, we're going to start to lose that credibility. And so maybe now more than ever, we need something like a strategic reserve of, of oil. I might add that we we probably need a strategic reserve of steel too. And I, I think that was part of the issue when Trump was putting in steel tariffs and we were kind of having our fights with, with China. 
is that perhaps we should have had a reserve of steel. Perhaps we should have a reserve of vaccines or other things that are, are just in case uh, things get bad. I, you know, so Justin, you're shaking your head. It looked like you had something else to say too. Maybe your last, your last word before we get into a break here. Peter was talking about this being a kind of ghost of Christmas future moment, but it, if we even look, I mean, look back, I'm looking at a, uh, AP News article explainer from March of this year. Why is Biden halting federal oil and gas sales? And because right when Biden got into office, he shut down oil and gas leases and lease sales from public land in the U.S. And we have, you can find a quote in there from the director of policy from the NYU Law School's Institute for uh, Policy Integrity. The federal government is a huge player here. The government has market power. If you restrict the supply of oil and gas, you alter the market and you create a better environment for more sustainable fuels. Uh, <laughs> now, look, exactly I know that might sound good in a little in an AP article, but what that means is raising the prices of fossil fuels and gas. That's yeah. literally what that means. Yeah. So the idea that this is somehow unforeseen or unplanned or like, well, you know, I can't believe how could this happen? How could a thing like this happen to us? It, I mean, it's like it's part of your platform. So, yeah. yeah, I completely agree with what with what both of you have said. Yeah, and maybe to I know we're about to go into break, but maybe to preview before break. Obviously, part of the reason for the price rise is you know that what, what weird things are happening in the market for oil and the regulation that Biden's using. But part of it is that the prices of everything are going up right now in general. And so I think we've talked about that before, but I think we should touch on that again after the break. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to look at how we measure inflation. It looks like they are convenient. Sometimes they leave out oil and gas and sometimes they want to include it. So we'll pick up there in just a bit. The Wharton Institute at Ottawa University has created a competition called PPE Fest for high school students. It'll be this December 3rd and 4th, Friday, Saturday. We have travel expenses covered up to $300. Uh, some great speakers, uh, both national and internationally known. And you have a $500 scholarship to Ottawa University as part of your participation. If you know some high school students that might be interested in a program like that, check out our website. All right, so we did a little digging here on the break, and we want to pick up on some inflation talk for starters and then move into labor force. We got lots of fun stuff to cover. So the government likes to use what's called the core inflation rate, which excludes food and energy, and energy mostly being gas, but they, they measure some other stuff in there. Uh, I'm actually not sure what the fraction is, but food and energy. And so the core inflation rate is, I'm guessing, almost all, all-time high at 4.1% here as of recently. Annual. And, and that annualized rate, right? And, um, and uh, the full CPI is at 6.2. And so that's our differential that we're looking at. And I think what's interesting is they seem to pick and choose which one they, they want to use. So in some ways they say, we only want to, for, we focus in on the core one. That's the one we care about, blah, blah, blah. And that's excluding uh, the food and energy again. But here now we have the Biden regime passing this, releasing the strategic gas to try to help with inflation. And I think it's clear that it's, it's outside of, of that type of help um, for various reasons we brought up. And they just seem to pick on the inflation rate that they want to use that, that works for what they, the messaging they want to do. Yeah. And I, I think it's also important now to kind of tackle this 
commentary on the supply chain. The first thing that I want to mention, and we talked about, we had a, a, po- a podcast on inflation, uh, gosh, probably a month back now. I, I just wanted to update that if you measure our money with the M2 money supply measure, which is the most common one economists use, there's different ways you can measure money. Like you could ask maybe, you know, does a savings account count as money? Does a checking account count as money? How liquid can something be before it's no longer money? The most common uh, group of accounts that we add together or group of different assets we add together called money is M2. And just according to the Federal Reserve's own statistics, the M2 since 2019 has increased 38%. And so that's since the end of 2019, we have 38% more money in circulation than we had right, right you know, at the end there of 2019. That's a huge increase, very significant. It was very large at the beginning of the pandemic. It's kind of tapered off, but still increasing at a faster rate than it was even before. Anytime there's a growth in the money supply, if you hold everything constant, there's going to be inflation. And Justin and I talked about this during the inflation podcast. He mentioned that, you know, just increasing the supply of money is going to, you could say, lower the price of money, just like any other economics. Good. If you increase the supply, you lower the price. That's true of money, too. A lower price for money means your money can get less goods. That's another way of saying it. And so as there's a large supply of money, prices are going to increase. People don't like to talk about this, especially, you know, you won't hear the news often talk about how much of this inflation is monetary inflation. Instead, they like to focus on the supply chain. And I, I think the supply which chain- has been a useful scapegoat. Yeah, that, that's right. And I think there's a real thing going on with the supply chain, which we can right. get into in a second. Definitely. But I don't want people to forget the fact that part of the reason- that inflation is going so crazy right now is there's just been a bunch of printed money inserted into the economy. Printed money is making the price of goods go up. And that's all goods. That includes gasoline. Yeah. But we should talk about the supply chain too. I haven't seen any breakdowns of people estimating the difference. Um, I'm thinking that would be pretty difficult to disentangle. But yeah, certainly something that uh, Going back to Milton Friedman days, uh, something that we think would would work. The one reason why we didn't see massive inflation before was that people were holding on to cash, uh, mm-hmm. whether that's corporations or whether that's households. We have seen that this time with COVID as well. Savings rates uh, spiked to 13%. And so people have been holding on to their cash more than in the past, which again is going to dampen inflationary effects. So whether the consumers are holding cash, corporations are holding cash, banks are holding cash, if that spending's not going on at the normal levels that we see historically, then we're not going to have as big of an impact on inflation. And it might be a little bit lingering, which uh, we'll see if that happens. Justin? So for the non-economists out there, you know, if you just think about dollars chasing goods and services, right? And you do nothing to the amount of goods and services, but you increase the amount of dollars in supply, then you're going to have higher prices, right? And yeah. that's what we're talking about with monetary inflation. But the way I look at it is, you know, to the extent that we have supply chain issues, what that does is that hurts the other side of the equation, right? If you reduce the amount of goods and services, or if you reduce the amount of goods available because of supply chain issues, then you are going to have higher prices as well, yeah. right? And if you make restrictions in the labor force, either by vaccine mandates or things like that, that uh, restrict the amount of people that are willing to perform services for money, then you are going to find higher priced services as well. So you can end up with this kind of like perfect storm via supply chain, monetary inflation and uh, legislative issues that result in higher prices. Yeah, I think that that's that's right. I don't 
I think the transitory part would be the supply chain figuring itself out. And I'm not sure how big of a part that's played. I think businesses in terms of longer term planning and otherwise would see that and make adjustments accordingly. And so I think, uh, unfortunately, I think a decent amount of the inflation is the monetary part, which is part that bothers me. Yeah, I, I think I think there's some of it. Uh, the, the supply chain issue, though, we can really, you know, see presented in labor force participation. And so our unemployment is not quite to where it was before, but at like a decent rate. And so you might see, oh, unemployment, 3%, you know, Biden has recovered the economy successfully. People are back to work. Yeah. Remember the Trump era, 3%, that was historic lows. Yeah. Like historic lows. Yeah, so, that's, that's right. Um, this 4 to 5% range is much more in the in the longer term view, reasonable for most economists, I think 80, I would speculate 80% would still be somewhere four to five. That's kind of a natural normal rate of unemployment. Yeah, that that's exactly right. And so we're, we're basically at a normal level. And so you might think, oh, then things have recovered, but that's not quite right. Is as you might know, people at home and economists certainly know the unemployment rate is not perfect. It's not a perfect measure of people working. And the reason it's not is it doesn't consider people who have given up looking for their jobs. Or looking for jobs at all. Once you stop looking for a job, you're you can you're considered out of the labor force. Now that's useful because then you're excluding, I don't know, like retirees and kids going to school from the unemployment rate. So that's probably good. But the downside is you also exclude people who get discouraged and just give up looking for a job, or they decide they no longer want to be a person who's employed. This number is called the labor force. Since COVID hit. Our height of our labor force before COVID was 164 million in the labor force in February 2020. And now we are basically stuck. We've been here for, it looks like about six months now. We're stuck at about 161 million people in the labor force. So 3 million people since COVID have left the labor force and not returned. Yeah. And so my my hypothesis on this is that they're not discouraged as so dis- the idea of a discouraged worker is that they've been looking and looking and they can't find a job and they're like, oh, forget it. I'm just going to stay home and, and watch Netflix and, and live low. I, I think what we found now is that people have learned to live low from the pandemic and they have realized that they could retire early and still be comfortable. They can live with their parents and it's not the most awful thing in the world to not have to pay rent. So I think we see a lot of combined living situations now where whether it's a a friend or a relative or or a grandma or grandpa or something, you know, combined living where now you were paying five, six, seven thousand. Well, I'm I'm using Midwestern prices here of rent. Uh, If you're in D.C., I suppose you're more like fifteen hundred, two thousand or let alone San Francisco. But whatever your price is you're taking those people off the market and they're not spending that money anymore. And they're learning to live with grandma and grandpa and they're learning to live with friends and they're okay with that. Yeah. And I I think some of this too is uh, government benefits. So there was an increase in unemployment benefits during COVID. Those have for the most part been relaxed though different states still have them. But another piece of this that people don't consider is economists talk about a thing called switching costs, which is there's sometimes a cost to switching from one thing to, to another. In this case, moving from being a person who's employed to a person who's unemployed, there's a big cost to figuring out how unemployment programs work. Getting enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid, this is an expensive process. It takes a lot of learning. You know, Getting signed up for unemployment, maybe there's a stigma with that. During COVID, a lot of people switched over to this because they had to. They lost their jobs and they needed the benefits to stay alive. It's a lot easier for people to now just stay on 
government provided insurance, for example, than it was to switch over to it. And so I, I think you're right, Russ. I think a lot of the being okay with living low is being okay with now living off the government benefits. I'm already on them, so I'm just going to stay on them. I think that that's happened uh, you know, to a large degree. Yeah. And how much of this is caused by what I would say inward entertainment? So now I can live with mom and dad and I don't actually have to interact with mom and dad very much because I can stay in my room and watch Netflix and surf the internet and do all of my virtual entertainment. I can put on my VR goggles and be in another land. As that continues to grow more and more, I'm not so sure there's as much downside to living with mom and dad where you don't have to sit in the living room, like in my days anyway, (laughs) and be in the living room with mom and dad to watch the TV when you can isolate yourself and be kind of in your own world if you want. Uh, Maybe it's even Zuckerberg's meta world where he rules the universe. I don't know. Yeah. So that, that's definitely part of the supply chain issues. And so the, you know, we talk about, well, inflation's because of supply chain issues. Justin mentioned, well, it makes sense. There's, you know, less uh, stuff. And so that's increasing the prices too. And so that's a piece of it. And then the last sort of piece that I would mention is uh, we really underestimate, I think, the damage that COVID did to our capital stock. And so you can't consume without producing. Like this is a rule of reality that like, you can't consume without having first produced. Uh, This in economics is sometimes called size law. You can't have consumption without production. And one of the implications of that is if you are consuming and you're not producing, it must be that what you're consuming is previous production. Mm -hmm. And so during COVID, when most people weren't working, we had that period of a month or two months where almost no one had a job. They were all sitting at home. I mean, maybe they were still being paid or whatever. If the whole country is consuming and no one's producing, what that implies is the whole country is consuming capital. They're eating past savings. And when you consume your capital, you become less productive in the future. I think part of the reason for the supply chain issue, we have the labor side, but there's also the capital side. We just don't have as much capital as we used to because we ate a lot of those savings. Help the listeners with what you mean by capital. Yeah, capital, you can think of, there's kind of two different concepts for capital. One is capital goods. Capital goods are like machines, uh, things that help you produce other things. And so you can think of the machines in a factory as a capital good. And then you can think of capital as the value of all those capital goods. Uh, so that's like the money value of those things. And again, in order to consume, you need some form of production. Well, one way that you can, can, can continue to consume uh, if you're not producing today is you can use those capital goods and not replace them. And so you can deteriorate them over time. Yeah. And if you're doing that, then you're able to consume for a while without having to do any work, but it also destroys your capital goods, which means you're going to run into the supply chain issues. Machines are going to stop working. Ports will get clogged up, things like this. Yes, we got uh, some real underlying fundamentals between the labor stock being materially changed, we think, in in different ways for different reasons, but uh, COVID kind of being this shock, labor shock that maybe... um, Maybe this is all for the good. I mean, a part of me thinks if we are less materialistic and we learn to live together in different ways, I mean, there there can be some some good parts to this. But uh, the long-term growth, I think, as uh, issues like Peter's bringing up with the reduction of of incomes and we can no longer draw on our old capital stock and things really do start to wear out and that starts to deteriorate incomes, that's when we're going to have problems. And I think we're yet to get to that point. And I think 
it, what can seem nice now, which probably isn't that nice, by the way, <laughs> could be really ugly uh, later. So Justin, what uh, what's your smirk all about here? I tend to doubt that this is, this is a move in a good direction. And I'm worried too <laughs> about even this idea that, you know, oh, we'll all be happy just living at home. Just plug into virtual reality instead, you know, live at home, live in the pod and eat the bugs and live in uh, Mark Zuckerberg's <laughs> virtual reality. No, thank you. I, th- I think this is, I think this is bad. Yeah. The new normal you think is, and I mean, that's what Obama talked about, that this is going to be the new normal. And then, you know, that data that Peter was just bringing up showed that when, when Trump took office, labor force participation continued to grow. And, and we did see income per capita in the United States growing. Yeah, well, I, I think ultimately, like the, the result of this is like, there, there might be some benefits to like learning how to become less dependent on, you know, certain things that that's fine. But ultimately, like the bottom line is, here is that, by the way, this isn't all his fault. Uh, Trump increased M2 as well and caused, a, he did a lot of the lockdown policies and things like this. So Trump has some responsibility here too. But the, the bottom line is the economy under Joe Biden is really bad and it might shape up to be the worst economy in 50 years. Yeah. It, it, we're maybe not quite there yet, but it, it might shape up to be that way because at least in 08 and 09, when we had the housing crisis, there wasn't inflation. And so that's nice. The prices were at least low while you were losing your job. Now there's this question of, can people find you know, good paying work? Uh, can they find the goods to buy? And are they gonna be able to afford things even if they do? Uh, this possibility of having low production and high inflation, this is sometimes called stagflation. Uh, this is the first time that, you know, this has been a real concern since Jimmy Carter was president. Yeah, yeah. I think the uh, garden hose, using a garden hose, the strategic reserve use um, is maybe, I'm starting to think, a garden hose being used for uh, the start of a blazing forest fire. Yeah. That's just not going to be enough. And it's almost a joke to to throw out that little bit of a, of a pittance at this, the, the real underlying issues. Justin? Um, just to kind of tie this back to what I said at the beginning, when I said, uh, you know, the media was gaslighting you about gas prices. Um, if you look back, uh, you will find uh, people six months ago telling you that you didn't need to worry about inflation, that these inflation yeah. worries were misplaced. You don't need to worry about them. Only crazy people are talking about inflation. And I think what people really need to do is take a hard look at the media that they can they consume and realize that if these same people, if these same so-called experts are getting it wrong over and over again, you need to start revoking your trust in these people. Um, yeah. Look back and see who has actually made predictions that got it right. I don't want to toot anyone's horn over here, but you know, your crazy uncles over at the Guartney Institute said two years ago <laughs> that uh, two weeks to stop the, uh, to flatten the curve. Well, uh, I'm really worried that we never see the end of these two weeks and that freedoms once surrendered are never given back. And here we are two years later. Um, yep. We were screaming about inflation six months ago. So uh, again, look to people who have made uh, correct predictions and stop listening to these experts who have gotten everything wrong. Yeah. I, the other thing I wanted, wanted to bring up uh, to maybe start to close things down is that with inflation, if it is at being at 6% now and 5% last month and whatever. So we, I don't know how long we've had, has it been four months in the five plus range now or so? At least four months. Yeah. So um, 
here's the thing, folks. If if that if those prices have ratcheted up that amount, in order to stay where they're at, theoretical inflation would have to drop to zero. So we already have some persistent effects. If that would have been a one-month blip up to five or something, that's happened in the past. That, that's not as big of a deal. But the this three to four to five month uh, run of, of those prices going up would take a significant drop to even bring them back. So the, the, the inflation tends to ratchet things up and not come down, especially with the stated inflation target still of 2%, which I assume uh, should be pretty forthcoming here that they'll bump it up to 3% as I predicted on a podcast, what, six months ago or so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but even they're going to overshoot three percent at this rate. I think uh, so. it's. Yeah. I mean, if you in in theory, if you're having five percent inflation, you're definitely going to go over your target of three percent if that continues over and over. I, I mean, there, there's just. Uh, I, I had to laugh. I, we might have even mentioned this last week. I don't think we did, but uh, the Economist released you know a tweet that kind of got infamous that said. Uh, the sharp increase, increase in inflation over the past year has blindsided many economists. Almost no one saw it coming. <laughs> and like the best response to this is I can't find a reply now, but there was a reply like pointing out the fact that people were making memes of print, like the, some guy at the Federal Reserve printing money by like spinning a wheel. And it's like, yeah, who, who didn't see this coming? You, <laughs> money like, printer go burr. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like this, it literally became a meme. So everyone knew that this was happening. Uh, some people didn't want it to happen. Because people like their, they'd like to live in a world without scarcity, yeah. but ultimately we do. Uh, you can't amend the laws of reality because you would prefer them not to be there. No, no. All right. Well, that looks like a good spot to wrap. This has been a production of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. A five-star rating helps others find our podcast and feel free to pass our stuff along via email or what other social media you use. Other than that, be fruitful, multiply. Thanks.